All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner and Rich Hoffman for the second time after a false start here on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. You know, we kind of waited a couple days after the draft and after the trade to do this podcast, and I'm I'm kind of glad we did because I think it lets us take a step back away from the emotion and maybe the shock of it all and re- really focus in on what the Sixers have and the merits to the decisions that they made. But how you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. The uh, yeah, it's I think right after the draft, the key to me was the process and the planning that went into making such a bold move. Uh, and now we can look back and see where the Sixers roster shapes up heading into this important free agency period. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I think. When the pick was announced at 10, and it was Michael Bridges, it was like, well, that was the most boring, obvious, not necessarily wrong, but nobody was surprised by that move. Nobody around the NBA was surprised by that decision. And then I'm sitting there in the interview room with with Bridges, and he's talking about how much he can't wait to play with Joel Embiid, and how excited he is to play in his hometown. And as that press conference is going on, towards the end of it, I think maybe there were like two questions left, I get the mobile notification from from Shams that he had been traded for Zaire Smith and a future pick. And at that time, we didn't know the details of what that pick meant. So it was a little bit of a shock. I sat there and I debated, like, you know, do you break the news to the kid now? Because he had no, like, a lot of times you'll see trades on draft night where they go up and they wear the hat and they answer questions, but they already know that they've been traded. He had no idea, flat out no idea. The the sincerity was real. Like he was really excited to be with Philadelphia. So you kind of debated, like, do, do, do you break the news of the kid right here? Do you say, hey, what do you think about DeAndre Ayton and the uh, the Phoenix Suns? And I think during the time that it took me to debate that internally, they had already kind of you know gotten the uh, the final two questions. They had already lined them up. The, the people already had the microphone, so the decision was kind of made for me. But it was a really weird spot. It was a weird spot for Bridges. It was a weird spot, quite frankly, probably for Brett Brown, who now has to go in. You know, his uh, uh, Michael's mother is the what head of HR for the Sixers. So that could be a little bit awkward. Uh, I'm sure from a personal standpoint, you know, uh, sure as heck don't think Brett is heartless. Like I think he understands the gravity of it. But by the same time, you know, I think this is a trade that came up after the Sixers made, made it. I do believe that, you know, when Brett Brown says they selected Michael Bridges to draft Michael and keep 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 Michael, Michael. You said you said his name about six different ways already. I, I really have, but I, I do believe Brett when he says their intention was to keep him and make him part of the team. But a, a trade offer came up that they couldn't refuse, and you can't you can't tell Bridges to not go to the press conference, and you couldn't really finalize the deal until Zaire Smith was there at sixteen. So it was it was a tough spot. But I think when I stepped back and the shock, I, I, you know, I got over the shock because we'd all kind of heard that they were interested in Zaire Smith. Like there were some reports that he was that he was in contention at 10, and I didn't feel like there was going to be a spot where they were going to take him at 10, but a trade down from 10 or a trade up from 26, you know, I heard was in play. So the, the trade itself wasn't a shock, but to go from the hometown kid to trading him away that was certainly surprising, and I think it did take a little bit of time to kind of get over that. Yeah, and, and for his mother, I'm sure it was one of the most bittersweet ways that your son could become a millionaire 
But on the other hand, your son just became a millionaire. It's not like they took his money away. Right. He, he, like he's going to make $3.5 million next year playing professional basketball with the Phoenix Suns. He'll he'll be okay. Yeah, and so will you. But, yeah, I, I agree that that – it was certainly an awkward situation the Sixers were placed in. What was interesting to me is how different Smith and Bridges are – not only in terms of uh, skill sets, but also timeline as well. Because at the press conference, or I, I think it might have been that night, or maybe the next day, whenever, Brett emphasized that Bridges was 1A and Smith is 1B. Which which I love, by the way. And, like, good on Brett for not being like, oh, we had them rated exactly equal. And, you know, 1A, 1B is a little bit of a couch in that regard. But for Bridges to step up, and have his coach say, like, hey, look, we like – for uh, Zaire Smith to step up and be like, hey, look, we like Bridges more. It's uh, it's Typically, you would get a little fluff bullshit from a GM, and Brett still doesn't have that part of it entirely down. No, and, and I'm going to miss that in a few weeks when he's uh, he's not the GM anymore. Right. I, I do hope Smith can uh, – can petition to have his number be one B uh, if <laughs> <laughs> if things work out here, but in terms of their timelines, and, and Brett was also frank and honest about this as well. Bridges was the guy who slots in right away. Who he only played three years at Villanova, but he was there for four, and he was polished, and he played for a great coach and a great system. Learned all of the the fundamental things that make the initial transition to the NBA as easy as possible. Zaire Smith was a three-star recruit who went one and done, who nobody had in their uh, in the lottery area or just outside of it where he went. And Brett said this right away, too. He might need to play in the D-League. They're going to have to work on a lot of different things, his ball handling, his, uh, his shooting especially, there, there's going to be a little bit of of polishing up his game that's going to need to happen. And for for those two to be ranked essentially on the same spot is, is kind of interesting to me. The uh, And then the thing we haven't talked about yet is the Miami 2021 first-round pick. I'm not going to lie to you, Derek. I, I, I do this for a living like you. I had no idea that pick was unprotected. No. They that news came out, and I said, "Oh yeah, that's the pick. Uh, that's one of the picks they traded in the Goran Dragic trade." Yes, and then somebody said, "Oh, that's unprotected." And I was thinking, "Oh man, I thought uh, I thought all the unprotected picks were uh, were pretty much done after the uh, the Sacramento trade." Do you know, like, like, do you know how many off the top of your head number one picks have been or uh, unprotected picks have changed hands? Uh, no, I don't. Um, Are there any others? I, it's a great question. I truthfully don't know. Uh, newsflash to armchair GMs, do not trade unprotected first-round picks, especially not four or five years in advance because shit changes, and that is almost borderline negligence to trade a pick like that, which means to me it's almost borderline negligence to trade that pick if you're the Phoenix Suns especially just to move up six spots in a draft to take a guy who's still a little bit of an unknown. Like we, we convince ourselves every year that players are safe. Players are, you know, a sure thing. And look, 
you can you can look at, at Michael's skill set and say he's more of a sure thing than anyone else. Sure, I I, I buy that. But is he a sure thing to be an all-star? Sure as heck isn't. Is he a sure thing to even be an above-average starter? No, he's not. You don't trade two picks for one in the middle of the draft. I'm very hard against that. Whether you're talking about the 12th pick versus 16th pick, 10th pick, 16, even 10th pick, 18, you need as many swings at that as you can get because there's so much unknown in this. So even if that Miami pick in 2021 only ends up being, let's say, the 15th pick in the draft. To me, that's still a bad trade from Phoenix's spot. But when you throw in the uncertainty, you throw in the age of the Miami Heat, you throw in, you know, the cap situation they'll be in before then. And yeah, they're going to get a lot of cap relief in that tw- summer of 2020. But because it's all coming at that one spot, you're putting a lot of faith into one year and being able to retool real quickly on the fly. And as I saw from Sam Vecini, that's not the strongest free agency period ever. And then you throw in the fact that high school kids will most likely be allowed back into the draft in that exact year, and you're basically having a double class. Rich, that has a chance to be a very valuable pick at a time when the Sixers have, you know, should be winning 55 to 60 games every year, and it will have absolutely no cap space and will probably be in cap hell because of all these young kids who will be coming up on contract extensions. You need that influx of high-end talent. You need that influx of cheap talent. And even if, look, everyone's looking at this pick as this could be the pick to trade for Kawhi Leonard, or if that doesn't work, this could be the pick to trade for C.J. McCollum. And I agree with you. I think that's likely their their plan. But even if that all of that falls through, this pick will, A, get more valuable as time goes by because you'll get closer to the 21, 2021 draft because you will get further away from Miami being a playoff team, I believe. Uh, those two will make that pick, and you'll get more certainty in whether or not it's going to be a you know a double class in that regard. I think this pick is going to gain in value as time goes by. So even if the Sixers don't use it in a trade now, even if the Sixers don't use it in a trade in the next twelve months, I think it's 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 a really good decision that they made. Yeah, the the process on on trading the the Sixers killed Phoenix in that regard. And in Phoenix, you have a GM who has not done shit for a long time. Who it looks like he made the deal thinking, well, this might work out for us if if Bridges hits and he's a really good player. And if it doesn't, well, I'm going to be fired anyway. So who who really cares? It, it almost screams like a GM who's desperate. That's what it is, and that that's the type of GM that you want to take advantage of. I know. I think he just signed a contract extension, so he shouldn't be desperate. But who knows? Maybe there's some heat in Phoenix we don't know about. It's the kind of move that a desperate team and a desperate GM makes. Yeah, and to get back to your point on the Heat. We watched them play the Sixers in the first round of the playoffs. Did did it look like, wow, this team has a super bright future? No, and, and they're capped out and old. Yeah, so th- that is certainly it, – it's something we said with uh, – w- when they made the Lakers trade way back when for MCW, it's – look, nobody knows how this is going to turn out, just how nobody knows how Mikael Bridges and Zaire Smith are going to turn out. But that's the type of gamble that you'd like to make. And how about the Sixers with their their coach turned GM having the longest view in the room? Right. Uh, and and we, I believe, on this podcast had wondered about well, well, what happens when the Sixers need to make a trade? Now this is a little different than the trades we were talking about. We were talking about the the Kawhi 
potential, the, the, the blockbuster for a star. And, and hey, we, we could still get that in the coming weeks here. But this was – there was some nuance involved here. They This was not an easy decision, obviously. And Brett had talked about you know they were happy with McHale. And they still made the move to – Get a huge asset that they, uh, you know, that they their assets had been depleted over the last couple of years, and like you said, for a team who is on the rise and who we think, you know, if everybody stays healthy and and Ben and Joel continue to progress, at at a very minimum, is going to be a contender for a while here. To get that level of an asset when that team is going to be good is a huge deal. And uh, again, I, I had Mikhail Bridges rated ahead of Zaire Smith, sort of but I can, but I can also acknowledge that taking wings at the back end of the lottery, that's a crapshoot. And I, I do think Zaire Smith probably is a higher upside than Mikhail Bridges. But the difference in between Bridges and Smith to me was not even close to that pick. That that pick more than makes up for the difference. So, you know, from what the Sixers did, I I think that trade you know, we'll see. It. Again, we have no idea how it's going to work out, but I, I love the thought process behind it, and and good for them getting that done. Yeah, I mean, it really is like like you. I had I had Bridges higher than Smith. You know, there's a very real chance that the progress Bridges has made over the last three years on his jump shot, Smith never comes close to reaching. Like I I. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, Bridges is 22. He doesn't have that much more room to grow. And my counter to that would be like, well, okay, but the last three years, he's kind of had outlier level development in that jump shot. So maybe he doesn't have quite as much room to grow, but that's okay because he's already reached so much of his theoretical peak. Um, I do think, you know, I like to put buckets, like Ben Falk wrote about this, and and basically he was talking about draft risk risk profiles. And, you know, if you were going to say like the sixth, he had, you know, Fringe categories of fringe bench player, sixth to eighth man, which is kind of like a, a more valuable bench player, starter, all-star, and superstar. So if I were going to make a draft risk profile of bridges, you know, I'd have that middle ground, that eighth man to starter categories real high. Like, let's say maybe 60% high, whereas maybe Zaire Smith is only 40% in those categories. But the all-star, I would have bridges relatively low, like maybe, you know, 5 five to eight percent because it's real hard to be an all-star wing whereas maybe bridges has like a 15 or a 20 percent chance of reaching out i don't know i'm just kind of making this up on the fly but basically with bridges you have a real strong middle stronger than than zaire smith but zaire has a little bit more upside now i don't think that upside is necessarily likely enough where you would put zaire smith ahead of bridges alone which is why i had zaire smith 15 and bridges 10 in my, my my ranking but when you add in that pick and you add in the optionality of that pick, and we're going to use a Sam Hinkie Fraser, but that's really what this trade represents to me. It represents optionality, not just maybe that five to 10% chance that Smith has of a better becoming an all-star than, than Bridges, does, but also what you can use that pick for, whether that's trades, whether that's a quote unquote worst case scenario of using that pick in 2021, when you have, you know, you really need an infusion of young, cheap talent. There's just so many ways that this can end up working out in the Sixers' favor that I think it was a really smart move. And look, we're going to give Brett Brown credit for not over-prioritizing short-term. And I think that's I think, I think think he deserves that credit. There's still a part of me that thinks, you know, maybe he was talked into this. Maybe Alex Rucker or Ned Cohen or Mark Eversley sat him down and went, look, 
you know, you take a little less of a sure thing on Bridges, but we're going to use this asset to try to make a trade, try to make a splash this summer. Maybe it's not really short-term thinking on Brett's part. We don't know. Um, but I, I, yeah. I, I give him a lot of credit for, at the very least, making the right call at the end, regardless of how he got there. And look, I'm not, I'm not saying that Brett Brown was against it if it wasn't the possibility of a trade. I'm just saying, like, there's a lot that could be going on here. But ultimately, they got the call right, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, they uh, they should be happy. Uh, Zaire Smith, I, I don't think we talked about him too much on the on the pod before the draft. I will say, and I said this even even while slotting him below Bridges, one of the craziest athletes I've ever seen. Yep. In the draft, he is. Uh, he's not. He's not a uh, you know a six eight six nine type LeBron freak. But I'm talking like like Russell Westbrook type hops on on some of these dunks, and he's you know he's a guy. They're betting on player development. They uh, uh, they've obviously had a lot of practice over the years with the with uh, with I would I would say less talented players for the most part than right. than Zaire Smith, uh, and you know they're going to try and get him up to uh, to the All Star level. You're going to get, but it's a uh, I will say you're absolutely right that hey maybe the the pick turns into a very win now move and they trade for Kawhi Leonard but Zaire Smith if uh, if he is on the roster that is not a win now move at all no it's not um, and I like I he, he's going to be fun to watch develop because he did seem to get more comfortable you know kind of off the dribble and playing as more of a wing even though he was still playing four shout outs to Thomas M. Uh, if you're not an athletic subscriber who reads a comment, you won't get that. But he, he he did play largely at the four at Texas Tech, largely at the five before then. And I thought his perimeter skills did get better, or at least he got more comfortable in using them as the season wore on. But he still has a lot of work to go. But he's got a first step and an athleticism that if he ever gets there, and he, if he can ever maintain a dribble in traffic, and if anyone can ever buy into his jump shot and and, and sell out on the perimeter, he does have a lot of untapped potential. He does have, you know, I think a lot of people are going to look at him being 6'4 and think maybe he's a two-position defender. I do think he can defend some threes in this league on a, on a semi-regular basis. He's got a 6'10". He's a strong, he's a strong kid. Too. Yeah, a strong kid with a 6'10 wingspan in the world of athleticism. You don't defend shots with your head, so I think he's going to be okay there. Um, <laughs> that comes yeah. into a little more play when you're talking about offense, like shooting over someone. That's when, when size matters more than wingspan, but here I think he's going to be okay. So I think he's going to end up being a contributor. The question is how far along he comes. I think it's a reasonable gamble to make. Brett Brown seems like he's very confident in developing his jump shot, and again, that could be Brett blowing smoke up our asses, but he at least projected that air of confidence. We'll see. He'll be fun to watch develop. He'll be a, a reasonable gamble to take. And like I said, that 2021 pick, it really does. If they just If they just selected Zaire Smith at 10, I would have some reservations. I'd be excited about watching him. He's an entertaining player, but I've had I'd have some reservations. But that that 2021 pick is uh is very you just don't trade you just don't trade unprotected picks. It's a really bad idea, especially when there's enough time for shit to go wrong, and especially in a draft that could be hyper valuable. It's just I don't yep. get it from Phoenix's side at all. And Brett was in total salesman mode. I, that was something that had been mentioned online and by other people who had read the Zach Lowe report earlier in the week that uh, the NBA had sent out a memo to all the teams saying, hey, the uh, 
one and done could be over as soon as 2021, which would turn into the double draft, uh, which <laughs> I can't wait for if that if that does happen. The uh, yeah, and and Brett talked a lot about to uh, when it comes to Zaire's shot. I believe he only shot. 43s last year yep. at Texas Tech that and he played four so that's the uh that's the old Justice Winslow uh <laughs> you get a little bit of a little bit afraid as Justice Winslow was a really good shooter as a four man at Duke he uh but but he talked about how everything from his mechanics went went out of his way to say I like that he doesn't shoot a push shot and there was there's a player higher in the draft who got who got picked? Who I said I'm not sure that's going to translate. Has to be to, uh, Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson, absolutely. Yeah, I, I disagree with Brett a little bit on that one. But on which one? Yeah. On, ja- on the Jackson part or on the Zaire Smith part? Oh, I, I have no idea about the Smith part. I think the Jackson one is gonna is gonna translate. Well. I, th- I think he'll figure it out. I think he'll figure it out. Especially for a big guy. Yeah, and he said that he liked uh, Zaire's mechanics. There was a lot of. Uh, a lot of seem like sport vu type cameras uh, up top checking out his mechanics, and they they seem to they seem to do a lot of work on that, and we're we're comfortable enough taking him. I, I also thought like you know when I was talking about the differences between Smith and Bridges, Bridges to me was more of the three and D guy. His his dribbling is where I thought that that's where you can place a ceiling on him. You know he could attack a closeout. Everybody. It bothered me, by the way, how much he was compared to Robert Covington in the lead-up process. Just because a guy is a a decent defender who uh, makes spot-up threes and isn't like the best ball handler in the world, that doesn't mean they're the same player. Cove, to me, was a, a much better defender than Bridges. Bridges, to me, had much more offensive upside in terms of running off screens and attacking closeouts where Cove really struggles. But, yeah, Zaire Smith, I think, has the... Uh, the chance to get that second D that Brett was talking about. Develop that second D. That right. Right. Um, no, I think, I, I think it's a good, I'm, I'm surprised at how much backlash there was initially. I ran a poll the other day on Twitter where uh, I think like 89% of the people agreed with it, which I think is part because people have had a chance to calm down emotionally from it. And part because I don't think my, uh, my or your Twitter followers are necessarily representative of the entire fan base. But I, I was happy to see that a lot of people came around because I think this is a pretty easy yes for me. So it is a it, you know it's 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 a good creative way to generate assets on the fly, and I think it's a I think it's going to help them. All right, let's shift a little bit. I, I I guess real quick, any real thoughts on on Landry Shamit and Shake Milton? Well, I, I've been doing work for a story on Landry that will run on the Athletic. Tomorrow or today, depending on when this podcast drops, the uh, and it's funny. I, I really hadn't studied him too much. I, I obviously knew he was tall, point guard from Wichita State, pretty good shooter. It, it was funny when you we were in in Slack talking about the pick. Both you and Mike had the same reaction of, "Oh, that was that was too early for him." I uh, you know I, I don't I don't know. It's when we say what a crapshoot it is at the begin at the uh, tail end of the lottery, the tail end of the first round. I, I really have no idea. I, I will say he is a, uh, he's a very good shooter. He, he makes shots off movement. It's, it's impressive. You can run him off screens. It seems like he understands how to use back screens and, and even 
make plays off the dribble too, make some like nice snake dribbles and reads. He uh he is not a very good athlete though. Not a lot of deep penetration, uh into the paint. Did not I was not impressed by his passing. A lot of uh a lot of basic yep. entry passes to to Shaq Morris and and lob passes. He can see over the top. That that's a good thing, but he is not the type of uh athlete who's getting into the paint at will and kind of finding shooters on the wing. So we'll, we'll see. And obviously his defense is a pretty big concern. But, uh, you know, next to Ben Simmons, I can at, I can at least kind of see uh, why they'd take that swing there. Yeah, I think so. You know, my reaction was I didn't have a first round grade on him at all. And that's kind of, especially when you get that deep in a draft, that's much more of a prospect evaluation than a fit. You know, so when I say like, I think he probably should have gone to 35 to 40 range and the Sixers took him at 26. Is that like a huge misstep by the Sixers? Probably not. Like I'm I'm looking at it much more from an asset utilization standpoint than how he'll fit. Like I do think at the Sixers, if any team is going to take a gamble on him, I think the Sixers make sense. And and, and realistically, the difference between a, a first round pick and a second round pick salary wise isn't all that much. It's only the first two seasons guaranteed. So I think he fits. I think he is an elite shooter. I think you can use him off the ball and on the move, and I think that makes sense that the Sixers are a team to take a gamble on him. I worry that his defense might be at an unplayable level, and that's really why, you know, if he, if, if he was a elite shooter, and I think he can be an elite NBA shooter, if he was an elite shooter with even remotely passable defense, he's got a role in this league, and he sure as hell has a role on this team, but he has to have passable defense. I question whether or not he's going to get there. Like you said, he's not a good athlete. He has decent length, but he's really physically underdeveloped. He shies away from contact. He doesn't. He looks hesitant on defense at times. He looks hesitant on offense, too. Even driving the lane, he doesn't look like he's real aggressive. And like you said, his passing is a little bit rudimentary. I think he's going to have a role. I just worry that, especially in a playoff atmosphere, he might end up getting run off the table. And is he going to be even like, a Marco Bellinelli type shooter. Like you have to be that good of a shooter in order to really have a role. If you're going to be that bad of a defender. And I think he'll be a better defender than Bellinelli. Like, I think he's smarter than that, but I think he's going to have a lot of the same limitations where you might not be able to play him for extended periods against certain teams. Yeah. Talking to him seemed like an impressive kid. He uh, volunteered that. Yeah, I know the questions are all about my defense, and he thought that in the uh, the Sixers workout, he he showed them that he was a willing defender. Good story, raised by a, a single mother. Seems like uh, his head is on straight. We will see if that translates to the court. Uh, but yeah, you know, we'll see. I I, I think in terms of uh, the Sixers and, and their fit, it's it, while he might not have been the player. You know, as you said, from an from an asset standpoint and from a uh, just a sh- purely draft grade standpoint, might not have been a first round pick. I don't think was he was really rated as a first round pick for a lot of people. It, the roster construction that the Sixers have it, it does make some some sense. So I guess here's what my argument would be: if he's not going to be selected in the first round by almost anybody else. Why not see if you can either use the 38th pick on him or move up from the 38th pick to select him and then use that 26th pick, pick to maybe get off of Jared Bayless's contract? Or use that 26th pick in some other way to get another asset if you're just going to take a guy who's going to be there, you know, 10, 10 spots later. That would be much more my, my, my argument than 
I don't think uh, Landry Shamit is a reasonable gamble for this team and for this roster and playing off of Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons. And by the way, some people have tried to read in this, oh, does this mean that they don't have any confidence in Markel Fultz? Well, look, I don't know if they have confidence in Markel Fultz or not. I will <laughs> say the 26th pick in the draft the yeah. is not going to replace Markel Fultz. <laughs> it's, no. it's just, I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense that a guy who can shoot and is 6'4", 6'5", can play off of or between those two. It just it makes sense in a number of different ways. It's it's a great point in terms of of getting off Bayless's contract. If they were able to do that, I think, like you said, I, it, it, there's a decent chance that someone like Shamit could drop to them in the second round. And again, they had four picks in the second round too. They could have packaged a couple to move up to get him if he was their guy. I, like, look, they only made one selection in the second round uh so yeah it's uh there's always a lot of hand-wringing over uh over how this this post-hinky front office uses all of those second round picks that that sam acquired they uh yeah so they, i they did they did fine last week though like trading what 38 for two future detroit seconds and then 39 for a future lakers second i think that's how it broke down uh yep. They didn't sell them. They didn't use it on draft and slash guys who have no chance of coming over. So I'm okay with how they use it. I just wonder if they could have used that first round pick a little bit better. Yeah. So after the Sixers made, you know, moved down from 10 to 16, they saved about a million dollars in cap space. And I ran the numbers. And at first I thought they could get there just by stretching Bayless and by cutting um, TJ and Rashawn Holmes, which not that they would want to, but the point was they wouldn't need any other team to help them get to a max contract. And then I, I I caught an error in that because they'd only have 10 players on roster after stretching Bayless and cutting those two guys, they'd be charged two incomplete roster charges of a little over 800K each, and they wouldn't actually then have enough room to sign LeBron James. They're still going to have to make a trade. And it's like that Bayless contract, talk about it. it it's, again, I, We've, we've complained about this for a while now. Talk about a preventable preventable mistake, which could end up looming large, which I guess is a fine transition now to the Kawhi Leonard situation and to free agency. And look, a lot of people are going to ask, you know, what, what are the backup plans if LeBron or Paul George or Kawhi don't materialize? And we'll get to that. But at this point, everything still rests on what those guys decide. And there's a report from you know, Woj and Windhurst and I think Ramona Shelburne contributed to it as well. Which by the way, we I, I feel like we've got to do that more, like like a co report, uh where where we all contribute. Uh it just seems like the teamly thing to do. Anyway, moving on. There's a um report where basically T L D R of it. Uh the Spurs the Lakers felt like like the Spurs closed the door on trade talks. The Spurs on the other hand are open to trading Kawhi anywhere uh, that the Sixers did make an offer to the Spurs for Kawhi Leonard and that LeBron James is largely waiting to see what happens with Kawhi Leonard before he decides whether or not he wants to opt out of the final year of his contract. And why would he opt in? Well, opting in, he can kind of force his hand in a trade. Um, there's even talk he might come back to Cleveland. That seems really unlikely to me, but who knows? Crazy shit happens, especially when you're talking about a hometown. So it seems like Kawhi and, and the Spurs, by all accounts, are extremely, um, you know, they're going to take their time and they're not in a rush. 
which means the entire league is in a rush to trade for Kawhi, and the Spurs, on the other hand, are taking their time. We already know that the Sixers have made an offer, according according to Woj, according to reports. Do you think they make a real hard push in the next three to four days? Yeah, I think they do because – and the the focus of that team ESPN report was the Lakers, and rightfully so. They are the team that Leonard has expressed that he'd like to be traded to, and they are the team who – it seems like it's not a, a guarantee to sign Paul George anymore, but the Sixers are the second team because I, I have no idea what's going on in LeBron James's head. There have been, considering the way like the media landscape works and how many, how we run wild with rumors and speculation and even half-assed reports. That there really isn't too much. I think Windhorse the other day said 51% Lakers, 40% Cavs, 9% Sixers, which he was just making up a number on a, on a podcast. He certainly he gets a little angry on on being quoted from what he says on podcasts, kind of things that are just his opinion. Uh, so let's make let's make it clear that that's what it was. I'm guessing Brian Windhorse isn't listening to the Sixers beat. Enough to get upset over over how you characterize it, but yes, be, you never know. It. No, I'm kidding. But the Sixers are the team. I, I don't know what LeBron is thinking, but if they were able to land Kawhi before free agency, you would have to think that in LeBron's mind, they that becomes just a way more desirable destination. And we we talked a little bit about this before the podcast started. I, I am a little surprised. At with nothing happening, the Sixers kind of being pushed further and further back in, you know, in these half-assed reports that I'm talking about. But you know, when the season ended, you looked at the Vegas odds on the Sixers winning the title in the East, and all of these different things. They were up there, which suggested that Vegas was pretty confident that the Sixers were going to land some sort of big fish. And obviously, LeBron is the best player in the league. The more and more you hear people talk, though, they're they're being pushed further and further into the back, despite, I think, situations around the league getting worse and worse. Can you imagine if Paul George stays in Oklahoma City, man? Yeah, I mean, that's throwing. I mean, and that's kind of the, um, you know, a lot of people, well, you can't trade for Kawhi without a guarantee. And I, I certainly agree with that to some extent. Like, not that you can't trade for him, but it has to impact what you're willing to give up. Yeah. But I think I think I mean nobody seemed more destined to end up in LA than Paul George. Like that's why LA didn't even really make a substantial offer because they thought it was in a bag that he would come there after one year. And then, you know, OKC goes out, gets bounced in the first round, never really realizes their potential. A lot of that because of Andre Roberson. I wonder I wonder how much their season would have changed if he was healthy. But still, like it, the season didn't go according to plan. It was it was a disappointment almost across the board. But because he likes his teammates, because he likes where he is, now it seems like a really a real chance that he might end up staying there, even in spite even in spite of LA, even in spite of not reaching their potential. So you you add in Kawhi Leonard to the Sixers, a potential Eastern Conference Finals run or even NBA Finals run. His familiarity with Brett Brown, which some people have speculated that maybe since his relationship with the Spurs soured, that it would it would sour his relationship with Brett Brown. Well, Brett Brown wasn't 
involved in any of the injury handling situation. Like he's not going to, one's not going to have any impact on the other. And also, how can you not like Brett? How Seriously, how could you not like Brett Brown? So you add in an NBA Finals run to Brett Brown, to young stars to build with, to the Sixers being able to offer more money. Look, I know right now L.A. is a sexy rumor, but that would be a very hard thing for Kawhi Leonard to turn down. And I'm sure Brett Brown is sitting there in his office in Camden right now or out in L.A. or wherever he is, thinking to himself, like, look, I'll, I'll convince Kawhi. You get him here, I'll, I'll convince Kawhi Leonard to stay around long term. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. So, like you, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Sixers make a hard push. And look, this is speculation. I'm not reporting shit. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see <laughs> right, Brett Brown. And I don't want anyone transcribing this and putting it out on a report. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Sixers make a hard push for Kawhi. And if they can get that done before LeBron James has to make his decision, does that then impact LeBron James and his willingness to go to Philadelphia? Because it seems like, and there's kind of been one voice that's descended from this. It's, I think it's called Bet DSI. It's an offshore, uh, I forget exactly where offshore, but an offshore betting house who now I believe employs Chris Sheridan. And Chris Sheridan, of course, broke the news initially that LeBron James was going back to Cleveland. So at least at some level, there might be some kind of connection there to where you would give what he says credence. And he had the Sixers, or they had the Sixers, which I'm sure is based off of his input, as the second most likely suitor for LeBron James and still pretty decent odds. So you wonder if maybe he knows something I don't know, uh, but it is nice to see at least one voice breaking from the ranks of Vegas, which seems to have really soured on the possibility. But you do wonder if the Sixers can get Kawhi Leonard does that get LeBron James? Because right now, you know, if you're asking me why LeBron James would be like, look, if I can't get Paul George or Kawhi Leonard in L.A., then maybe I'll stick around in Cleveland for a year. The reason I would have, the answer I would have to that is maybe he feels like then he can make that same run to build a super team in 2019. He's basically just delaying having to make a long-term commitment. So maybe that gets him out of that mind space. I don't know. But I think yeah. it's a chance that the Sixers are discussing right now and, and the, to build off what you said and, w- and what I was talking about a little bit I the Sixers are the best basketball situation for LeBron I'm gonna say it like this is unless he can get both George and Leonard to LA this is his best situation the I'm sick about hearing that Ben Simmons needs the ball that is true he needs to get much better off the ball but you know who needs the ball less to prolong his career LeBron James yep you know who needs to not have to guard the other team's best player on a night in night out basis LeBron James and think about that you could tell LeBron I hope they say this in their uh in their free agency pitch if they are granted one and he doesn't orchestrate a trade to Houston right away or, or anything like that if they if they do get to sit down next to him I would just First off, I would bring Joel into the room and say, you don't have to give a shit on defense the entire year, and we'll finish in the top five because this guy, this guy, if we have him healthy, that's going to happen. I wouldn't say if we have him healthy because then LeBron would think about him getting hurt, but whatever. They'll, they'll figure it out. Uh, ben needs to get better off the ball anyway. That that drives me crazy, that this idea that, well, well, well it doesn't work with him – or whatever, like, just LeBron made it work with Wade, who was also a terrible fit at the time, and and Bosh figured it out too. 
this I, that's what bothers me about the Sixers being thrown thrown back here. And and look, like LeBron could do what he wants. I mean, he's clearly he's earned the right. He's going to make anywhere he goes except except the Lakers if uh if he doesn't get either of those two big guys. He he's going to make them at least pseudo contenders just just by his presence. But man, I I th- I would think long and hard about this situation here and if the Sixers were able to slot in Kawhi next to Ben and Joe, it's I, to me it would be a no-brainer from a basketball standpoint. There are other considerations, I'm sure, but you know, if if the, the goal here is to win as many titles as possible, I, I think that's that's a pretty clear answer. You know, there are there are two two ways to look at it. Would Ben Simmons be maximized playing next to LeBron James? No. Like that that's clear. That's not really the question though. The question is whether or not the sum of their two talents would give the Sixers a chance to win, a better chance to win. And look, this is a guy who just went to the NBA finals with, you know, fucking Rodney Hood and over the hill George Hill and Jeff Green and And he's and garbage. he's exhausted he's exhausted carrying them up the hill. Too. Exhausted. Put him next to Ben Simmons, put him next to Joel Embiid, put him next to Kawhi Leonard. Holy shit, is his life going to get easier? This is uh, The question isn't so much whether or not you're going to maximize Ben Simmons. It's how much better are you going to get by adding the best player in the fucking game to your roster. And it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. It, well, and also, too, it's not like him and Ben Simmons are close or anything. Oh, oh wait. Oh, they right, are. Right. And, yeah, and Ben will be like 23 or 24 when he leaves. There's also this idea that Rich Paul and Clutch and, and LeBron would say, well, we, we want to maximize Ben. And if I'm there, his earning potential or his, you know, him, his star in general w- would be kind of decreased by playing in his shadow. No, man, it would be the opposite. He'd be playing with LeBron every night. And like you said, he uh, he'd be 25 years old when you leave. Like you could show him the way. And then he could he could essentially take the torch. I so if LeBron goes somewhere else, like I, I'm not going to sit here and and bitch and say he should have went to the Sixers. But like they have a real legitimate argument f- for him, and and it's not it has nothing to do with anything off the court for for keep for uh, for landing him. And I, I I'm kind of I'm kind of a little I'm a little tired about with that argument being completely swept to the side here. Yeah, if 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 LA does everything right, they might end up being as good of a supporting cast as the Sixers already have. It it's very surprising to me how they're not talked about very much. And look, a lot of it might just be that the, that Philadelphia can't offer what LA can in terms of off the court sure, you know, financial yeah. business opportunities. Part of it might be that maybe LeBron James just wants a clean slate where he can build his own team. I don't know. But if you get Kawhi Leonard, that's I mean that would be a hell of a of a spot for LeBron to walk away from a hell of a spot. In, in L.A. too, if if they were able to land Kawhi, that supporting cast is going to be worse. Oh yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, you're probably kissing Ingram goodbye, right? Yep, you have to. You have to. All right. Well, yeah. It's it, <laughs> so <laughs> in a sense, I do feel. A little bit of sympathy for LeBron. Here's the still the greatest player 
in the world has been that way for a decade at least. And it's hard for him to win a title because of this, this juggernaut in Golden State. And, and there's no, there's no completely clean answer for him to, uh, to make here. So we'll see. That we will. All right. I think being that we're already 45 minutes in, it doesn't make sense to go to some of the backup plans, nor do I think Paul George is necessarily likely to decide to come to Philadelphia. He'd so be good here too. Oh, he'd be great. Uh, it seems like it is OKC or LA for him though. So we will cut this podcast off now. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on. We'll have another one of these soon. And talk to you soon. All right, man. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.com.